Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Evie Wilde. Evie is the author of the Miles Franklin award-winning novel, All the Birds Singing, and today Evie is joining me to discuss her new novel, The Bass Rock. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to the land. Their stories are the original stories, and I pay my respects. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture, and we're featured on 2SER every week. In the Great Conversations podcast, it's your chance to hear more of these discussions, the stuff that doesn't make it to air, and dive deeper into the books that you love. The Bass Rock weaves together three narratives across the centuries, exploring the pervasiveness of violence that women must live with daily. The novel opens on a scene of a child and her mother walking on the beach, about to make a gruesome discovery. We then meet Vivian, arriving in town late at night to catalogue the estate of her grandmother Ruth. In post-war Scotland, Ruth arrives at her new home, unsure of her place and her role in the lives of her adopted children. And some centuries earlier, Sarah must flee her village after she is charged with witchcraft and faces brutality at the hands of townsfolk and burning at the stake. Join me as we discover Evie Wilde's The Bass Rock. Evie, welcome. It's, it's so great to have you. Thanks for having me. Now, Evie, uh, Evie is also a London-based bookseller. Uh, she runs the independent bookstore Review. And because of time zones, this is pre-recorded and we're speaking at the end of my day, but the beginning of Evie's. And Evie, I'm about to do something. I thought I, I, I just want to start. It's probably something you dread. I'm, I'm going to romanticise working in a bookstore. Because <laughs> um, everyone who loves books romanticises working in a bookstore. Um, so when when we get off the phone, are you off to to change people's lives with a perfectly timed book, or are you are you more the acerbic, curmudgeonly hiding behind the stacks bookseller? Oh, I was definitely the curmudgeon. Um, I'm I'm not actually behind the um, behind the till anymore since I had my son. But um, but yeah, I was a silent kind of glare in the corner. Um, it's much more friendly now. We've got a much better manager in. Um, I think because I, I get quite easily spooked in bookshops um, if there's like too much fancy classical music or if people are too chatty. So I think I really, I really dialed it back a lot. I got a bit black books. I don't know if that's a reference that makes it to Australia, but it's... Um, I think I, I don't know, when I said a when I said a <laughs> and curmudgeonly, I was actually thinking of Bernard Black and um, okay, I, yeah. I wasn't sh- I wasn't sure if you were still behind uh, the till when your when your bio online said you were um, at review, but it also didn't have the Bass Rock on your profile. So I was like, oh, I wonder if this has been updated. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm very lazy at that, but um, but yeah, I'm I'm a part owner, so and I live on the same road as it, so I'm in there a lot. Um, but just getting in the way instead now. <laughs> I also I also checked. Um... I, I, just because I had a bit of time and I like bookstores, I checked reviews uh, website and noticed on Thursday it opens at twelve, and I could just—I was almost imagine <laughs> you sort of waking up on the lounge to a very, um, a very bright, per- yeah, yeah, waking up by your your bookseller offsider saying, "What if someone wants to buy a book at ten in the morning? Nobody wants to buy a book at ten in the morning." Hello, I'm. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Evie and Andrew quote black books show. So anyway, <laughs> on, on a day selling, if you could cast your mind back 
and this mm-hmm. is relevant now. Um, how would you go about selling an EV Wild book if that's not too a cheeky, too cheeky a question? Um, I I never I'd never put my book forward. Mm-hmm. I just think I just would curl up and die on the inside. Um, yeah, I it's not really. If they came across it themselves, depending on the person, I might point out that I wrote it, but otherwise I just keep completely silent and dead inside. <laughs> you wouldn't, I was, as I was, as I was noticing online, the books sort of juxtapose, you wouldn't sort of go with the, well, do you like books with, with birds on the front cover or? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do remember somebody sort of tr- trying to buy a book for their mum and their mum's Australian and. And there was something to do with sheep as well. And I was still, with my last book, I was still like, yeah, can't, nothing comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just, it just seems too creepy, I think. You know, mm. I don't know. I, I, I would go bright red and it's it's not worth it. When um, When other people were behind the counter, they were amazing at selling it. So I just would hope that they sold it for me. That is well. That's that is that is the correct answer, of course, because um, we know we know the units moved, and and it's just sort of you know wonderful. But I did mention birds on the cover, and I am talking about the Bass Rock. So let's let's get into that novel. And what I what I wanted to start with for the listeners is a bit of a content warning because the novel deals in violence, and particularly violence against women. Um, so inevitably the conversation will go in those directions. And some listeners may find this distressing. And if, if you think that's you, you may want to tune out. This is undoubtedly an important conversation, though. Um, so please use your discretion. And if any of the conversation impacts you, you can call Lifeline in Australia on 131114. Um, so now that I've just let people know that, uh, Evie, let's, let's talk about the Bass Rock, which chronicles the lives of three women. It's separated across four centuries in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And it opens with an absolutely horrifying scene of a child and her mother finding a woman's body stuffed in a suitcase on the beach. The moment is punctuated by a trick of the child's memory as as sort of the disembodied eye seems to to blink. It's immediately followed in chapter one with Vivian arriving in town late at night to catalogue the estate of her grandmother. And as she finishes a late night shop, Viv is rescued from some creep hiding near her car by a mysterious stranger. The contrasting moments, they, they serve to remind the reader that violence is ever-present, and it's only through solidarity, it seems almost, that women are able to escape it. The collection, the connection between these scenes wasn't immediately apparent to me as I read, but I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the violence that you were exposing here. Um, well, what I wanted to talk about was um, sort of everyday things that women come up against, you know, not necessarily all finding bodies but um but this kind of watchfulness that we have to have um in order to survive and and i was listening a lot to there's a there's an american podcast called my favorite murder um that uh is just two women talking about uh their favorite murders and um and they're comedians and it's very funny and they started it because they felt like they were both very weird for having this interest in in murder and in fact what happened is this huge community grew up around them of um of women saying yeah we 
we're really interested in murder as well and violence and you know and they they have like meetups and parties and fundraisers and it's huge um and one of the things that has happened is it's women talking about their experiences and that shared experience means that people are looking out for each other more um and it kind of takes the I think it takes a little bit of the power away from the people committing the violence. Um, I think it, I think in noticing and in um, looking out for other women and, and not being afraid anymore of kind of being rude, which is, which is a huge problem um, with, uh, with women not wanting to sort of, tell someone to leave them alone because it seemed to be rude like that's the worst thing that can happen um so yeah it just feels like there's this uh really hopeful feeling at the moment what with that and with me too that there are women noticing that everyone has this and they're not alone and it just feels really important to keep that sort of little light going there's so much of the bass rock though where you take us back and we look at how whilst something like me too um you know capturing the zeitgeist and and becoming such a phenomenon may make this seem like a, a very of the moment type of discussion this is not anything new this this pervades mm. society and in ruth's story you give us a, a glimpse of life following the war propriety rules behavior and and the family dog can't even be buried under its german name for fear of vandals but leeching out from the the strictures of propriety however is this seeming unspoken license that men will do what they will and deny or confabulate to avoid the consequences it struck mm. me today. Today we call it gaslighting. But what did mm. what did you see in in Ruth's position and in her struggle as the new woman in an unfamiliar house in a new town, trying to trying to find place? Mm. Well, Ruth is very much based on my British grandmother, who um, <clears throat> sort of followed that timeline. She married my grandfather, who wasn't anything like the the husband as far as i know in the um in the story but she married my grandfather just after his first wife had died of tuberculosis and um he had these two little boys who were obviously traumatized um and as i knew my mother my grandmother she was um re- fiercely intelligent but um had never done anything with it um so she was just bored and that meant that she was a gin alcoholic um she was really acerbic she was quite hard to get on with a chain smoker and she was just waiting to die for most of the time that I knew her actually and so um I was sort of I always had this idea of her as you know my my father didn't get along with her um and he was, I don't know, so I sort of inherited that view of her, that she was just this sort of awful mother who sent them all off to boarding school at eight and didn't have any sort of maternal quality and was all sort of dried up. Um, 
so then I, after she died, I inherited her photo albums and there are all these photographs of her on her honeymoon being actually incredibly sexy and interesting and engaged in the world and, um, and just sort of someone I'd never thought existed. Um, so that's where Ruth started from. A, um, it was looking at my grandmother and, and imagining something else for her, but also, you know, what could have been if she had had the opportunities um, to do something with her brain um, and the things that, things that got in the way of that um yeah and then it, and then she kind of moved further away from my own grandmother but it was definitely that was the the starting point for her in my first reading of the novel i i just sort of let the events kind of wash over me but as i as i went through a second time i particularly was paying attention to these these opening chapters and i realized i, I realized just the ever presence of violence and in ruth's in ruth's mm. opening i felt very much the idea that the violence that was being committed against her was was almost this denial, as you as you sort of said, uh, intelligence that was not allowed to be realised. And for Ruth, it's she's she's sort of dangled with a role, but she's never allowed to fulfil it. The role of mother, the role of uh, you know even a domestic role in the house um, that mm. might that might have been all she she sort of might have looked forward to is taken away by by various circumstances and. When I realised that, it, like that, really floored me. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that um, that idea that if you had a daughter, it was about kind of getting them off your hands. Um, and it, like my grandmother Ruth's um, sort of beloved older brother was killed at war, and and that really was the family kind of going well that's the end of our useful children. <laughs> so she was, you know, sent, she was sent to school and then didn't do terribly well because she was bored. And so they just took her out and then very young, she was married off to this older man and, and um, yeah, no wiggle room really. It was like no chance even to be a mother because they all got sent off at eight years old. And, you know, this is a really privileged um, upbringing. This is um, upper middle class um, Englishness. So everyone sort of talks like that. And um, and they go to church and they do all these sort of society things. They play golf. and um, But it's all, it's all with the women kind of running around in the background being attractive things to look at and really uh not much more than that um so yeah i think it there there was an idea that i always had that the the marriage between my grandmother and my grandfather was purely because he needed a mother for his kids um and then the more i kind of looked at that and unpicked it the more complicated it became i think in the third thread of the Bass Rock, Sarah's story takes us immediately into this sort of violence of superstition. 
a young woman has been captured and is to be burned for a witch, but not before she's raped and humiliated by the young men of the village. And this story is set some sort of 300 plus years earlier. The disparity mm. felt in- initially, it initially felt very clear to me, you know, this is a, a, a different time, a different place. But then as I thought about it, I thought these behaviours and I wondered, these mm. behaviours, particularly the victimising, particularly the blame, were they really that far mm. from our reality? Mm. Well, I think, um, you know, when I when I was writing it, I had a, a very small baby and so I was writing in his naps and I didn't really have all that much opportunity to think about what I was going to write. I just wrote whatever was sort of closest mm. at that point. Um, so all of these different timelines came out and more than the, the three or four that are in there now. Mm. And, um, and I didn't understand at first how they were connected. I, I was like, am I writing four books at the same time? That would be annoying. Um, and, and then when I was about midway through, um, a manuscript, um, you two, uh, not you two, me too happened. And, um, and it just seemed to go, it just seemed to kind of flick a switch in my head was that, oh, this is all the same stuff. It's, um, you know, witch hunting um, still exists. It's just slightly changed shape. And now it's domestic violence um, or whatever, you know, it's just this, the same impulse to um, to burn a woman who steps out of line in any way, whether it's how she looks or how she behaves, um, it feels like that venom is is still very much there. Now, I've tried to keep very, very carefully to the opening of the book because there is so much, so much terrific story in the Bass Rock, but there is also... There's, there's things that I could spoil for the reader's discovery. So this might be the time in the conversation where we, we let the listener know that if they're yet to read The Bass Rock, they might hear things that, that are otherwise otherwise they might want to discover on their own. But I, I, I can't not talk about certain things. And I wanted to start with the way those, those narratives came together. As you were just talking, uh, they emerged off your pen and you weren't quite sure what they were. But as you as you go between the stories and the historical times, you played with what I thought I knew about the characters um, such that I I had this impression of knowing a character well and then thinking, no, Mm -hmm. I don't know them at all. Um, Mm. And I was recalled to to sort of moments that maybe we all have where you'll you'll see a photo or hear a story of of your parents or your grandparents and suddenly they emerge for you in a in a completely new light you related a similar story yourself just then but how how did they unfold for you and what what did you learn at different times because it was so surprising for me <laughs> uh well the way i write is um i guess helps with that in that it's a big mess i don't plan anything mm-hmm. i just sit down and write what occurs to me that day so it's really a miracle that they get finished at all that there's a there's some kind of ending um so yeah all I do is I just follow the characters and I I feel like it's you know use a slightly different part of your brain when you're writing like that than than having an end point to get to um but I was, I'm always amazed by that feeling that you just described of like, you know, realising, for instance, that 
lots of other people have known your own parents for much longer than you, which seems like such an obvious thing um, that that everyone has secrets and everyone has got a weight of history behind them. Um, and like you say, that you, you can't know anyone. Um, you can't kind of understand anyone's thought process. And I think... I think this is always really starkly shown to me every time I have a book out and I'm worried that some family member or other will see themselves as I've thought, you know, rendered exactly as they are. And they never, they never see themselves as I think they are. They see themselves as someone completely different in the, in the story. So I think that does really interest me. Um, and, and I think it's important also not to have characters who are too good or too bad at the same time. There's, you know, a bad character, a baddie kind of has to have something to him, if, whether it's humour or um, an understandable past. Mm. And similarly, yeah. a, a good character, you know, a, a heroine kind of, they need to be human, they need, they need to be fallible and like we all are, have um things that aren't heroic that they've done in their lives what about the circumstance i mean as i say you unveil so much and it's always so surprising but a circumstance where we you know we learn you learn later about a character that we've met both as a child or an older man i'm thinking of christopher we learn about sort of brutality that he's he suffered as a child do you do you have to then think about the older character that you've introduced us to and whether that's still consistent because i mean it it read so beautifully consistent but i was you you know i was always surprised by the turns that it took and and these are these were family turns we're not we're not talking about car chases here this is beautiful subtle (laughs) stuff thank you yeah um yeah, definitely. I mean, I think a lot of the time I'll be writing a character and I won't know what's happened to them, but I'll know how they are. Mm. Um, and so it's like de- sort of backwards detective work, kind of like, well, why is this character so quiet at family mm. gatherings? What's the thing behind all of that? And um, so, yeah, it's almost like it's starting at the end and working backwards a lot of the time. Um, mm-hmm. And then you know, as with all of my books, then it takes on another life of like, well, going back to childhood and then going back to that child's parents and their childhood. And I'm always interested in that trickle down effect um, of trauma way back in the generations and how that affects people now. The supernatural has a presence in this novel that at times as we read it is is incredibly alarming. I, you have, you know, sort Thank of you. Henry. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there are Henry James turn of the turn of the screw type moments, but then other times it's 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 also treated as wholly unremarkable. And I wondered, mm. we're talking about these issues that are that are present that pervade every woman's life, um, whatever her direct experience of violence. What's what's the role of the supernatural in that in that sort of space? Um, I guess a bit like the Bass Rockets, like, you know, if if you were to believe in the supernatural, there's a sort of feeling that there's somebody just watching everything happen and 
unable to intervene and and perhaps not feeling like they want to intervene but just I don't know I, I kind of like this idea that um there was a that we're just moving in and out of like these death zones that um you know the world's been around and people have been around for long enough that I think you'd be hard pressed to find a patch of ground that has that someone hasn't died on um or been buried in and and I think when it comes to um femicide I was looking at um Sherelle Moody's map um of the murdered women and children of Australia. <clears throat> I don't know if you've come across that. And it's um, no, no. it's an interactive no. map. Um, and she's got little red hearts all over it. And each one is where a body was found. And you click on it and it shows you <clears throat> who the person was, if they have that information. And then as much about the case and if it was solved um, as they can. And what really struck me was the amount of unknown bodies, unknown women. Um, And so I think that kind of, to me, was a really beautiful illustration of what this is like, this kind of, um, you know, we're we're told statistically how unlikely it is that something like that will happen to us. But when you look at it, I mean, it doesn't seem like that small a statistic to me. It seems quite alarming and rising. We talked a little um, off mic before the interview about that feeling uh, that, that women have, whether it be on a dark street or just, just in general life of impending doom, trepidation when you are not sure the person who is approaching you, are they are they someone who could potentially harm you? Is this feeling that you're sort of describing in this this supernatural in the novel a counterpoint to that in any way? Is it is it somehow a presence that that meets that yeah. that other sense? I suppose so. I mean I what um what I wanted to get across is is kind of more the in the um, in the kind of present day strand is that feeling of the little things um, building up and creating this massive weight. Um, so whether it's being just stood too close to on on the on public transport when you know you know that somebody's doing it deliberately, but what can you say? You know without being rude, which is the, the biggest problem that women apparently face. And um or whether it's somebody asking you what book you're reading and how that impacts your day and how alone you feel in those moments and angry and how it really changes the course of your day so much that you can be on your way back from work, thinking about all the things you have to do, thinking about how you have to look after yourself, how you have to, you know, in a film, you'd come in, take your coat off, have a shower, make yourself some delicious food and then eat it, reading a book. And in in fact, what a lot of people I know, including myself do, is they come in with all these intentions. They don't take their coat off. They sit on the sofa in the dark and they just sit there feeling really, really heavy and depressed. Um, And I think that is partly symptomatic of this 
um, the level of small, small violences that are played out in a woman's life every day, which include, you know, that sort of feeling of somebody walking up behind you and you just have to be ready with your keys and your fist. Um, mm. But that's an, that's such an everyday occurrence that we forget that it's happening. We forget that it's a thing at all. Mm-hmm. And again, why it is, I guess, so important and to start to unpack what those what those small violences entail, uh, mm. so that so that people can so that some sort of realization can be brought to, to consciousness, mm. both for the people who yeah. who were more more than well enough aware, and then probably people. Uh, like myself, who are who are male, and perhaps too many times are excusing or just ignoring these violences, either in themselves or in their friends or in people around them, because they don't want to be involved. Yeah, I think there's a. I think we have a big problem over here with people wanting to joke about stuff. You know, like being a, a lot of this happens on public transport, being on a, a packed train with some drunk men who are coming back from a rugby game or something and they're making comments about the women and, and you know, what they'd be like to sleep with, um, which is a very sanitized version of it. Um, mm. And, and you, the, I don't know, there are, multiple films of um on iphones of this happening and and then you know a woman will stand up and say can you stop this This is disgusting and you you men who are not saying anything why are you not saying anything shut your friend up he's awful and then it turns into this like we're just trying to have a nice time we're just joking why are you so stuck up what's the problem blah 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 you should take it as a compliment all of that stuff um which when that gets thrown back at you, it makes you angry, but also there's this terrifying voice in your head saying, maybe I'm just really uptight and maybe I am an angry woman and and is that a bad thing? And I think we're taught, women are taught, it's ingrained in them um, that they, above all, cannot be angry or difficult in any way. And you see that in the workplace. You see, you know, the minute a woman makes the same demands as a man in the same tone, they're a difficult woman to work with and they don't get worked with as much. Um, and it's really, even even kind of quite, you know, right-thinking men and women um, do that. And mm. it, it's really depressing. <laughs> I don't know that it's it's new, but I think it's probably worth saying again and for for the listeners out there, maybe we just need to let people know that if you're thinking, let alone saying, come on, it's just a joke, mm. you've done something wrong, you, you're mm. part of the problem. Um, mm. Because if you need to tell someone it's a joke, it's it's not a joke. Um, yeah. It hasn't landed. <laughs> yeah, it, it hasn't quite hit the mark. And and so often, yeah, it's it's a part of not just the aggression, but the structure that actually supports the aggression and allows it to keep happening. Yeah, and the worst thing also, which is ingrained into men, which is part of toxic masculinity, which damages them as well, um, is that they cannot ever lose face. You know, mm. there has to be. That's why it never really worked. I mean, it 
it makes perhaps the women feel more seen if somebody says something to someone on on the public transport who's behaving like that. It's not gonna. That man is never gonna go. Oh, I'm terrible. I didn't realize I was causing offence. I'll sit down and be quiet now. I do apologize. That's never gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, what's gonna happen is they're gonna go away, fired up, really angry, hating women more. Um, but yeah, it's it's who knows what the answer is. But um, I I think it's all about just noticing and talking and speaking up when you can when it's safe um or just sitting next to someone if they look like they're alone and having this situation letting them know that you're you've got your eye out for them even if you don't want to escalate something and i think i mean i think i can maybe speak to the men in the audience and say you know it is possible to be part of the solution, but as you've just said, it means it means you have to look and you have to stop being part of the problem to begin with um, and think about those things. Think about those mindsets. Think about the idea of, of what face means and what, um, you know, what thinking something is just a joke actually might mean and then changing that and changing that behaviour. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I, I have... Another question, perhaps perhaps my last question, um, and it's about Maggie in the Bass Rock. Maggie enters the novel Saving Viv from the Creep, waiting by her car late at night that I've already mentioned. And she moves in and out of the narrative sort of as a, a figure of freedom and power, at one point just beautifully neutering an aggressive male outburst. And there's something of the ideal to her, and I wondered... What, if anything, you could say about Maggie without completely unravelling the novels who are yet, the novel for those who are yet to read it, or just or just tell me and I'll edit later. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose she is. Um, well, she's a self-described witch, mm. <laughs> which um, is like she's not embarrassed about it. She's not afraid of people thinking she's really annoying. Um, mm and loud um she's a little bit i suppose like a sort of female tyler durden from fight club in that she you know for a while while i was writing it i was thinking is she an alter ego of viv um she's not she's her own thing but she's the the exact opposite to viv who is interior and closed and um sort of stagnant <laughs> I suppose and the, um, Maggie goes out every day and does something whether it's a weird you know whether it's just I'm going to get really stoned on top of the hill or um, I'm going to go and I don't know sleep on the beach or something she she does a thing every day and um, yeah she's not I don't think she's necessarily sort of winning at life she's um she's still got the same problems that um that viv has but she's just approaching them in a different way um which was really good fun to write because she's loud and colorful and a lot of the book is sort of dark and gothic and um you know could be quite humorless if if there wasn't a um if there wasn't like a burst of something messing it up um 
yeah, I think she's she's the kind of most impressive bits of a lot of women I know. Mm. I had a I had a sense till right towards the very end of the novel when you mm. when you kill Sarah in I'm now mm. going to have to edit this out very much for people who've not read the book <laughs> but I had a sense that somehow you were going to draw a, a straight lineage between Sarah and Maggie and and kind mm. of create that that sort of ideal strength that had been moving through the centuries and but then I also through the supernatural I also had a sense that you were doing that but in a in a less uh, a, a more diffuse uh, a less directly connected way to, to sort of, I don't know, create some sort of strength, create some sort of hope. I think all the women in it share that slight supernatural mm. um, sort of trait. Like they're, they're all rebellious mm. in some way. Um, and really what it is, is, is the, uh, the kind of not quite supernatural, but the, um, the thing that all women have that they don't listen to often because it's thought of to be rude, that they like listening to their internal voice, their instinct, when you get a funny feeling about something, mm. um, the idea that you can act on that and say, no, sorry, I am leaving this situation right mm. now. And if you are, um, if you are a murderer, then that's the right thing to do. And if you're not, then you should understand that mm. something about this mm. situation makes me feel like I'm in danger. Um, and I think that's, I think Viv and Maggie together are in touch with that feeling. Um, Sarah and Ruth had that feeling, um, maybe kind of started to question it. But um, but it's definitely it's, there's a, a kind of thickening in your throat and your gut that happens in some situations and you cannot tell exactly what it is, but you just know that something's not right. And um, and you know the my favourite murder and the community that built up around that is all about listening to that and and it has undoubtedly saved people's lives and that's what the hope is at the end is that you know well maybe you know spoiler alert maybe Viv will go on to survive because of this noticing mm. it's um yeah it's a terrible and it's a wonderful thing to be reading the Bass Rock and and to be to be rooting for these characters that you've you've created and realizing that what you're rooting against sort of the villainy that is is very much a part of you know to be male, to be man, to be a man, to be you know brought up in a, in the patriarchy, and um, it's it's something incredible that you've done there because I, I it it, it galvanised me to think change needs to happen. Like these these stories, as incredible as you tell these stories, these are stories that we don't want to see perpetuated. Um, yeah, mm. Mm, absolutely. Mm. I'm speaking with Evie Wilde, and we are discussing the Bass Rock. Um, if you are still listening and have not tuned out to uh, to avoid spoilers, thank you so much, Evie. Uh, it's been such a terrific chat, and this is this is a really tough a really tough conversation. And I know that means less coming from me because I am not a woman who experiences this on a daily basis. But please, if this has uh, impacted you in any way in Australia, you can call Lifeline on one three one 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 four, Evie. 
I really want to say thank you again. Thank you for, for chatting to me across the time zones. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this great conversation with Evie Wilde. Evie's latest novel is The Bass Rock, and it's out now through Penguin. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. And if you want to get a new podcast episode every week, well, just subscribe. Uh, We drop new episodes and bonus episodes every week, and it's a great way to keep up with your reading. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. So till then, happy reading.